Today on More Than a Test, we are talking to Shannon Trejo, although what I should call her is Dr. Shannon Trejo because she is receiving her EDD on the day she recorded the podcast. Talk about being dedicated to education. She is the chief academic officer at Dallas ISD, one of the largest districts in the country and in Texas. Uh, Additionally, she has led a lot of different teams, curriculum and literacy. She's going to have a really candid conversation with us about science of reading and making the change for both herself and her district. Um, And like I said, she's talking to us on a big day for her. So it's a big day for us. Thanks for listening. Shannon, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So glad to be here. And I can see you're in your Dallas ISD office, I'm pretty sure. How far are you from the start of school? We are one week from the start of school. Kids come back on Monday. Very exciting. Ah, that's so exciting. Um, And you are the chief academic officer at Dallas ISD. Tell us about Dallas ISD. What makes you special? Tell me about your students. Tell me about your teachers. Oh, my goodness. Dallas ISD is such a special place. Uh, You know, it's it's considered one of the big urbans, but um, I believe that we've got such a sense of family here in the district, led by a leader who believes in a culture uh, of, of kindness, of em- embracing differences, uh, and in combating inequities, that it, it really has become a lighthouse um, for the city. Uh, we have 142,000 students. We've got about 10,000 teachers, um, and our teachers are make the world go round. They are so focused on student outcomes and ensuring that our students are supported, that they have the instruction that they need, and that they are reaching for and accomplishing their goals. I couldn't ask for a better place to work in. And Dallas is interesting because there's a lot of like charter, large charter networks there. There's a lot of private schools. How does how does that ecosystem work for you? Yeah, um, so that is one of the interesting things about Dallas ISD in that we do have a lot of competition in the area, um, but we don't we don't back away from competition. We are ready to compete as a public entity. And so we do have a lot of choice options within the district, school within the school opportunities with programmatic um, uh, pathways, let's say, that parents can choose from. It can be Montessori, it can be P-TECH, it can be uh, single gender, it can be IB. Um, so I, I think we want everybody to call Dallas ISD home because we do have a seat at the table for you, no matter what type of choice you're looking for. Wow, that's really great. Um, and I love all the different options that I hadn't really thought of. Um, that's great. So right now we're talking to a lot of chief academic officers because it's a really hard time, I think, because all of the news is is coming out somewhat disappointing around academics, right? We thought we were going to come out of COVID and just see this surge in academics. We we're going to see a surge in achievement, and it just hasn't happened. Um, what are, how are you feeling, first of all? And then second of all, what's your strategy knowing, knowing what you know now as far as the recovery from, from COVID? Yeah, I think I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I feel like we have in Dallas ISD focused on a clear strategy that's led by our superintendent and our, our um, campus leaders and our teachers to really understand what recovery looks like. So for us, what we have really doubled down on is this idea that we want high quality instructional materials in the hands of great teachers, because what really matters is the teacher. So if we can provide really great materials with on grade level instruction, we know that our kids will perform. And we're already seeing that. So whereas, you know, 
some districts may be experiencing some continued uh, downward, downward trajectory. We are actually seeing sustained or even upward trajectory, specifically with our student groups who were historically marginalized or underperforming. Um, and we know that with this great curriculum going district-wide and we're providing access to the good stuff to all children, that's going to make a big difference. In addition, we're doubling down on the interventions that we know matter. And part of that does have to do with literacy. We have highly trained staff on the science of teaching reading that are being specifically deployed to campuses to work directly with students. So we do value coaching for teachers, but we absolutely value highest quality teaching with our students who have the greatest challenges. And that has proven to have returns for us. Okay, let me dial in on a couple things you said. The first thing I heard you say was on grade level material. And when the research is coming out and showing that kids are really far behind, how are you meeting, like, for example, a fourth grader who's reading at a second, first grade level, how are they accessing on, on grade level material in, in Dallas? Yeah, so the core tier one instruction is what we're, what is non-negotiable for us. Every student will have access to that on grade level instruction in the tier one setting. And after that instruction is where we determine supplemental supports for a student to fill those gaps in tier two and return to on-grade level instruction. So what we really want to be cognizant of is that we're not removing students from tier one instruction in order to provide, uh, you know, fillers for those gaps. And in turn, they miss the on-grade level instruction, which puts them even farther behind. So our commitment really is to, in what ways are we ensuring that tier one instruction is our priority, that all kids get access to on-grade level instruction? And then in what ways are we supporting our students who are not quite there yet or have such supplemental needs that we do need to provide pull-out programming or additional um you know, focused, intentional support through a different type of instructional leader or a different type of resource. Okay. All right. So I, I hear what you're saying that the core instruction is really important. And what I heard you say as well was like the teachers are the most important. And I think anybody who's been in a classroom knows this, right? They know that like whoever is in front of the kids decides what gets to the kids, no matter what resources you give them. Um, and so Another thing that I wonder about is most districts are experiencing a teacher shortage right now, um, so much so that I was actually supposed to meet with a superintendent in Oklahoma at one point last fall, and I and he kept rescheduling on me, and I was like, hey, like, stop rescheduling on me, and he said, I've been teaching first grade for the last week because we are so short on teachers that I, like, this is what I have to do, and so that's why he rescheduled, and so my, my question to you is, how are you meeting the demand for teachers? Great question. I think we, I've got to give props to our chief uh, human capital management, Robert Abel. He has really come through with a diversified package around recruitment and retention of high quality teachers. First of all, I would say as the chief academic officer, we actually did a right sizing uh, through an initiative that we called Kids First Initiative. And what we did was we took all hands on deck and I had 140 people that I deployed out uh, two campuses to serve as the classroom teacher, teacher of record. And I suspended their duties here at central office and said, please go and give your very best to our kids. Um, and when we're done, I have a position for you when you come back. Uh, turns out many of them chose to stay <laughs> in those classroom positions. Um, so that was one way is in what ways are we looking at our central office staff to be more of this direct student service support as opposed to a central office type of support um, to teachers or leaders. Secondly, our um, 
HCM Group has really done a phenomenal job in terms of recruitment. Dallas ISD this year has had over 8,000 applications. We've hired about 1,500 teachers since uh, up until the beginning of school, and we have probably less than 120 vacancies at this point. And when you talk about 10,000 teachers within a school district, um, to be 99% filled or to have a 99% fill rate is, is incredible. That is incredible. It is. Our HCM team, actually, we have our own alternative certification program in, internally where we create pipelines uh, for staff to be able to become certified. We have um, student pathway programs where we partner with our local universities and offer our students a job on the spot as soon as they uh, graduate. Um, so I think, it, you know, on top of just competitive salaries and darn it, just pay teachers what they're worth. And um, so the compensation package that Dallas ISD has put together to really say we value you as an expert and we want you to come call Dallas ISD home is bar none, one of the best I've seen in the state. I would put it up there nationally. Uh, and that's why I believe that we've got high quality teachers coming to Dallas, staying in Dallas and making a difference for kids. Okay, I have two questions for you. One, when you deployed 140 central office staff members to schools, did anyone say no? Did anyone say, I'm not going back to a classroom? No, we sat down uh, with every single group. And I, I think this is important, right? It's, it's about leadership. And it's not a question of, hey, this is your assignment. To me, it's a question of, why are we here? What's our why? Whether you're central, whether you're campus, whatever it is, if you're in the education system, everybody has a heart for kids. And so we sat down in small groups um, and we actually did it over a weekend because we recognized what was going to happen. We were going to have thousands of kids without a teacher um, and without a teacher for a significant amount of time. And we sat with our team and said, I believe in you. I know you're here for heart for kids. Here are the things that we've got going on. What can you do to help us? And they were like, put me in, coach. Like, I'm in. So we worked hard to match experience, uh, like grade-level experience, content experience with the vacancies that were available so that people would walk in feeling comfortable. We got together uh, classroom materials packages and delivered those out to the classrooms to help with the, the quick transition. We all got out there and helped set up classrooms. Uh, you know, we, we did everything we could to help our staff make a transition into that role. But it really, at the end of the day, I think they felt like we, we were all in this together. It was not a question of you don't have a job. I'm just asking you to do a different kind of job for a little while because that's what our kids need. Um, and, and they stayed. And we were very upfront and transparent about it. And we said, this is not a one week thing. At the minimum, you're going to be there nine weeks. Most likely you'll be there a semester. Some of you will be there all year long. But I will keep you posted as the vacancies fill. We want to do a transition because we want kids to be okay. Um, and really, the longer that our team was in the classroom, <laughs> the more they would come back and go, I'm just not ready to leave my kids. You know, we're doing so well. Um, they're really growing. It's so funny. You know, before the podcast, you and I were chatting about your community and about your about Dallas ISD. And, and you said, like, the reality is, Laura, the leadership here is so strong. The people I work with are so strong. And I think this speaks to that, right? That they just were willing, like, you know, it's, you know, like one of those moments of like, 
when when the when the call was there, they they answered, and that that's really neat and really special. I wasn't expecting this story, so that's so great. Um, the other thing that comes to mind to me is in we've been talking now for like nine minutes, and we've covered science of reading, academics, teacher shortage, you know, like you name it. And we're not even talking about the fact that your job is pre-K-12, right? So is this what your job is like? Is every problem pre-K-12, whatever it takes to get instruction to kids, is all underneath you? And then what does that look like? I do like pre-K-12, the the gamut, right? Uh, And even a little bit of zero to three space and how are we in the early learning space connecting with our community and business partners who support that so that they're pre-K ready and then they're kinder ready and then they're third grade ready and so on, transitioning to sixth and then uh, TSIA and college and career ready. Like every piece of curricular uh, decision-making, supplemental resources, professional learning to support teachers and leaders, assessment strategies or the reduction of, of that, and really making decisions around what's best for I let let's be clear. I don't teach any kids. I teach zero children. So my entire job is to ensure that our teachers in the classroom who do teach kids have everything they need to be successful. Um, And that that means like this year with our new curriculum going out district wide, we're not doing lesson plans anymore. No more lesson plans. We're utilizing our curricular materials that already lay out a lesson plan. And please don't spend your time doing that because your time is valuable and you don't need to do that. We've also reduced our assessments uh, in all grade levels so that we can spend more time with instruction, which is where teachers are experts, right? And so, you know, there's strategies there around that. So we're spending a lot of time working through how to support the implementation of high-quality curriculum. I would tell you, too, every district is different in terms of the chief academic officer. Many of us support programmatic offerings like dual language and ESL, special education, um, library and media services. I, I also support visual and performing arts, JROTC. Uh, so there, wow. there's a gamut. And it, it does tend to be a little bit different or nuanced depending on the district that you work for. Um, but I think overall, you know, the academics person is charged with focusing on what does it take to make high quality academics happen in a district and that's programmatically and with content. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question about your job and then we're going to talk a little bit about you. Um, because what I think I heard you say is your strategy for 2023, 2024 is reduction. It's about reducing the work on teachers, reducing the amount of things. Is that true? Yes, absolutely true. Um, we just, you know, the, the pandemic caused all of us to kind of open the door to say, whatever you can put your hands on, whatever you got to do, do whatever you got to do to try to make these connections with kids and keep instruction going. And I think at that point, we that that door opened and we had 1,500 different things that our poor teachers were trying to juggle, you know, and do and learn. And, and so we really had to come back to this idea that I need great teachers to have the best resources and, and time to do what they need to do in the classroom. So we've really got to, like, come back and go, okay, we don't need this and we don't need that and we don't need that. And teachers, what do, what do you just – what's the bottom line? What do you need, Right. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. So we had Carl Rectanus on a little while ago, and he does research around nice. ed tech. And one of the things he said was that on average, and, and he asked me to guess how many ed tech products kids come into contact with in a year, and I guessed something like 30. It was 143. 143 
how, so how is a teacher supposed to manage all of that? So that's great. That's an, I think that's an amazing um, strategy. And I think that I'm sure your teachers really love and appreciate you. And it's why people are willing to go back to the classroom for you. Um, and, and we were talking about these programs that help kids who are from Dallas stay in Dallas ISD and teach in Dallas, Dallas ISD. Are you from Dallas? Great question. I actually um, grew up in the Houston area, um, but the majority of my career has been spent in the Dallas city of Dallas proper and suburban areas. So I, I really feel at home in Dallas and feel like this is a big part of, of who I am as an educator. That's awesome. I actually used to live in the Heights in Houston, so I know Houston well. Oh, yeah. So what part of yeah. Houston are you from? Sure. Yeah. Southeast side of Houston, Pasadena. Uh, so kind of heading down towards Galveston, grew, born and raised and actually worked in Pasadena, uh, where I grew up and I was a principal down there as well. So, um, it, it's, it was a great experience to grow up and go to school in Pasadena, come back and teach, uh, and be an administrator in Pasadena and then get a chance to actually interview some of my own teachers who wanted to come and work for me when I opened up school down there. That's awesome. That's so great. And so then when did you make the transition to Dallas? Oh, gosh. Uh, early 2000s, transitioned over uh, to Dallas. So out of the 29 years that I've got in education, I'm dating myself. Um, the majority have been in this Dallas area. And you came over as a principal or what job did you come to Dallas to do? So that was my first foray into central office support. And I actually came into Irving ISD as a uh, curriculum director uh, and that was my first opportunity to kind of expand a little bit around um, understanding curriculum at, a, at scale across uh, across the district. K-12 curriculum, you were over all of K-12 curriculum? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And then you also did something similar to that in, in Dallas, right? You were over literacy. Is that right? Or was it actually curricular? So in that particular position, uh, when I transitioned over to Dallas, I was um, assistant superintendent of language, literacy, and social studies. And so that position, I know it's different. Everybody's different. Um, I oversaw all of the reading, language, arts, and social studies curriculum, PD, like all things like language and literacy. But I also supported dual language, ESL programming, world languages. Um, and so it was kind of everything language-oriented um, fell into that shop. And it was such a great opportunity to kind of really deepen uh, a passion of mine that that was already there. So, Well, it's interesting. The part of the reason I asked this question about the timing and um, the roles that you had is that, you know, if you look at your career, you kind of fell right into this, this science of reading, balanced literacy, reckoning, right? You kind of started your career in balanced literacy and now we're here. So tell me a little bit about that. What do you remember from those first years working in literacy, working in curriculum and what you were doing and what do you, and how has that shifted now and how have you managed that shift? Okay. So now we're, this is going to be a therapy session, right? So here we go. <laughs> I was raised on balanced literacy in the nineties. Uh, so much so that I even became a consultant for balanced literacy and taught many people how components of balanced literacy worked, how to do guided reading. Like I was like, I was a big part of that movement and used it, loved it, taught it, believed in it. Um, and, you know, in looking back, I, I think it's it, it's definitely a reckoning for us because I don't know with complete honesty that I used the data as a method to show that my efforts were effective. Can I just tell you how much I appreciate you saying it? Because I will tell you that a lot of people on this podcast generally will come in and say, I've always been science of reading. I've always been science of reading because they're afraid to admit that they did it wrong. And it's, and I think it's those of us who are willing to say, 
I did something wrong or I didn't know better and now I do that are going to really make the changes. I'm so glad you're sitting in the chair that you are and having the conversation. So, so you were, you were a consultant and I will, you know, like I'll tell you, I'll, I'll admit it. I went to Lucy Calkins in New York. Like I remember, right. I was there praying to the God with everyone else. So when, when did you start? So you were saying like, I wasn't looking at the data. I, kids weren't learning to read. Science of teaching reading for me, I, I just completed a doctorate. Um, on literacy. Congratulations. Believe it or not, I, I'm walking the stage on Friday, so I'm super excited about that. Um, That's so I've spent the past three years, to be quite honest, really digging into the subject. And it, it what spurred me on was the reading academies. Um, so in the state of Texas, all teachers, grades K through three, are required by the state to participate in a year-long 60-hour training on the science of teaching reading. Um, and as a part of that, they've got to learn, go to class, implement, get a student artifact. Like it's a, it's, it's really uh, entrenched in great professional learning, you know, strategy and, and modalities. So I, I got really interested in that because I kept thinking, well, we've had reading academies for years in Texas. Why, what is, why is this one different? than all these other ones, we're still in the same place. Like we still have huge disparities between our student groups. We still don't have all of our kids reading on grade level like we should. Why would I send my kid, my teachers through another 60 hour <laughs> literacy training again? You know, um, And so a lot of the work that I did on my dissertation was related to the impact of the reading academies uh, on student achievement. And you know, it was done during the pandemic so I think, you know, you've got a lot of factors that are in there. But in, in doing so, I had to really sit down and have some reconciliation uh, around my own beliefs and philosophies and practices. And then what the research actually said about the science of teaching reading, particularly about science, uh, science of teaching reading and explicit instruction around phonological awareness and foundations of literacy with children of color. Um, and it, it was... Um, a reckoning for sure. It, it was a wake up call for me to go, it's okay to say we need to do things differently. It's okay. Um, and it's also okay to manage that transition to go, it's okay to put some things down in order to pick up some new things. So I'm not telling anybody we need to continue with these practices. Actually, to the contrary, I'm saying, are read alouds great for kids? Absolutely. Does that live in science of reading? It sure does. So there's some pieces of, of what we knew to be true and what we believed to be effective that absolutely fit into science of reading. And then there's some pieces that, that don't. And the research tells us which pieces those are. And it's time for us to listen. And the data right now is telling us that our students are on the right trajectory, particularly our African-American students who are seeing tremendous gains in first and second grade in not only in their um, trajectory towards on grade level proficiency, but also we're seeing a closure of the gaps. Our kids are accelerating faster uh, than, than some of the other student groups, which is what we want to see, right? We want to see those opportunity gaps close. 
All right. If you've ever worked in schools, you know that you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and so in this episode, you're going to hear a couple of different things. You're going to kind of hear two parts. And you're also, if you're watching it, you're going to see our, our outfits change because with some technical difficulties, we ended up doing this in two recordings. So the first time we were both in different places, uh, I was in Seattle, Shannon was at her office, and now we're both at home finishing out this call because we could not help but want to finish this conversation. Um, Shannon, thanks for coming back. Thanks for finishing this out with us. Um, we, the last time we talked, you very candidly let us know that like you were a balanced literacy person. You, you were, um, someone who, who has come along and now is into the science of reading. And so we, we talked about, you know, as a principal or as a leader who is trying to help people make that change, what would they do? But I also want you to talk to people who want to be in your role, who are feeling like, oh my gosh, I did this wrong. Can I also, can I still be a CAO someday, even though I taught balanced literacy? What do you need to do to make the changes? So what would you tell those people? Yeah, definitely. You know, in the last conversation that we had, I think as a CAO, you really got to take a firm stance as a learner. Research changes all the time. You have to be aware of what the science is telling us. And then how do we translate that science into actual practical implementation in the classroom? I think our job as as, uh, executives is to support our campus leaders and our teachers. That is our whole job, right? I I think I mentioned before, I teach exactly zero children, (laughs) exactly zero children. And so it is really, really important that I'm doing everything that I can to support the people who are teaching children every single day. And if that means I've got to learn something new and I've got to bring in new resources or better understand the methodologies that are getting better results for kids, then that's what we've got to do. Okay. So, um, and I I think that makes sense. And I think a lot of people can understand that when you are brought something new, what, what are, what's the litmus test that you use? What's the kind of thing that you ask yourself about? Like, is this good? Is this right? Like, where are we swinging on the pendulum? What, what are the, what are your, you know, bar barometers there? That's a great question. Um, So in terms of like research-based strategies and different things like that, um, our team will typically get into the research, right? And look at research within the past five to seven years. Um, How many times has this type of approach been replicated? Where, with whom, what were the results? Who was involved? What resources did they use? How long did it take? Which grade levels were impacted the most? Like it's all of those questions that you would ask when you were trying to try out a, a new something new in your own classroom, right? Um, I also think we we have the benefit that we can reach out and talk to other uh, districts who are finding success. So I will typically also ask, where is there another district using this in a way that they've been successful? I would love to talk to them. Um, I think practitioners will tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and in that way, you can really have a much better handle on if I'm if I make a decision to move forward with this, is it you know is it something that could be valid? But I also want to want to take a look at um, from my point of view, anything you, anytime you're looking at design thinking, right, and you're iterating on a problem of practice, you always start with the voice of the practitioner. Um, and thinking about where are you, what's been working, what's not been working, and how does this thing that I'm thinking about, this new thing that I'm thinking about, provide a potential solution um, for that. So I, I always think it's important to begin with empathy interviews with the people who are directly involved, students, teachers, parents. And if something's not working, I want to hear from them first before I just jump in there and go, here you go, you should do this, or you're going to do this. You know, no one wants something done to them. 
Um, be, people want to be a part of the decision. They want to be at the table and they want to feel like their voice matters because honestly, it's the only voice that matters, right? The only voice that matters. What I hear you saying is you've got to stay connected to teachers. You've Absolutely. already mentioned that you teach zero students. How do you stay connected to teachers? Yeah, great. Um, getting out and being visible on campuses. Uh, so we, we're going through professional learning right now uh, with our newest uh, instructional materials that we're rolling out district-wide that have to do with the science of teaching reading. So where is the CAO? Sitting in the trainings, right next to the teachers, answering questions, listening to the presenters, clarifying um, getting that feedback. We also collect survey feedback with every session and we actually pivot and make changes for the very next day, um, depending on what, you know, what's happening with that. Um, so I think being visible and being out on campuses from day one to day 360, right? Um, we also have a plan to do walkthroughs, uh, intentional plan to do walkthroughs to take a look at how are we supporting the implementation, how are teachers feeling about it. Um, so we also look at student data to determine, you know, how things are going uh, in terms of that type of success. And believe it or not, I actually troll social media. Um, I feel like a lot of people post how they're feeling about things, good and bad, and, and I'll reach out to people uh, and say, tell me about this post. You, you seem frustrated or you seem like this is, you know, this is something that maybe I can help you with. Um, let's talk more about it. All right, Dallas teachers, you heard it. If if you are having a problem and put it on social media, you might just hear from your CIO. It sounds <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're one. Of, it's interesting to hear you say, like, you're sitting in the training with teachers. I've worked in a lot of districts. I've worked all over the world as a teacher, and I've never had my CIO sitting next to me in a training. And so I'm curious, like, what in your past has like informed the way that you lead now? Like when, when, when you think about all the roles that you did, all the places that you've been, like what is it that like lets you know this is the right way to go? Being visible, I think, tells people who you are in the work. Um, if I'm not willing to sit with people in the work and be a part of the work with them in a way, in the best way that I can, because I'm not teaching kids every day. So in what ways can I help support and, and show my sincerity, my openness, my willingness to really value the voice of the teacher and the campus leader, to be honest, the principal as well, um, then, then why am I even here? Uh, it's, I mean, that's how, so all the jobs that I've had as a teacher, what did I want? I wanted the principal to listen to me. <laughs> I wanted my team leader to hear me, right? If I was struggling with something, I wanted them to be genuine, help me problem solve, help me work through this situation. As a principal, I wanted central office to listen to me. I had these issues going on and I needed help, but I would talk and maybe people didn't always hear me and some did. And so I always tried to, uh, you know, model off of the great leaders who, who are a part of that pathway. You know, uh, Dr. Elizalde right now, I think is a teacher's superintendent. Um, I think she really models the idea that you have to listen and you have to let people be a part of the decision-making process. You cannot do something to them. You must do uh, make decisions with um, our team or it's not a team. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest factors in motivating me to try to be as visible and connected as possible. All right, last couple of questions about the CAO. What's the best part about being a CAO? What's the worst part about being a CAO? Best part about being a CAO is hands down, getting to work with amazing people. 
Um, every day, especially in a district like Dallas, there's 25,000 employees in Dallas. I get to meet someone new every day, right? From custodial staff to lunch staff to, to transportation staff to classroom teachers. Um, and it, we have such a talented group who have a heart for kids. It's easy to stay motivated and inspired in Dallas ISD, and it's easy to stay motivated and inspired as a chief academic officer when you get to surround yourself uh, in, in people who have a heart for making things better for kids. Um, so that's probably the best part of being a CAO, and I get the opportunity. It's a privilege to serve in that role and be able to influence things in a way that promote equity um, that, that give students choice, that help students get in their trajectory towards career and college. Um, we set the bar. Uh, and if we set the bar for excellence, I know that our students, our teachers, our leaders can meet that bar. Um, so I'm just glad that I have the privilege to, to be able to set that bar. Um, probably the hardest part of being a CAO is setting the bar. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, it's it's almost one and the same, right? It, you always have this fear of if I set the bar, are people going to be able to make, like, you have to believe that people can make it and that's hard, right? Am I doing enough? Or is everybody getting the resources they need? Is the professional learning what it needs to be? Oh, shoot, I missed something, you know, um, or I have a teacher that's frustrated and I can, you know, that I'm struggling to try to meet their needs. Like, it's all the great things that you have the privilege to do and then the hard work that comes in. It's, you'd, be, you'd be silly to think that it's not nerve-wracking, that it doesn't keep you up at night, um, that it doesn't weigh on you when you see the results come out and kids are not succeeding at the level that you want them to succeed at. Um, and you have to own that responsibility, right? If, if teachers are not succeeding, that's my responsibility. Um, I have to figure out what else I can do to help them be more successful, which in turn helps our, helps our kids be more successful. So it is um, definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, thick skin, for sure. Um, and you, you have to take care of yourself so that you can take care of others um, because that's, that is the role. I really appreciate you saying that because I think often in a classroom, it feels like district office doesn't understand you at all right? Like they haven't, they, it's been so long since they were in the classroom. So to hear that you are staying up at night based on the data and the reports and what's happening in classrooms means a lot to me. And I'm sure a lot to other teachers, we are running low on time. So I'm going to go ahead and move us to the five questions that we ask every guest. This has been such a joy to learn from you. Um, again, Matt, my producer and I were talking about just all the different things we covered, talking everything from science of reading to the parts of your job and, and the ways that you support teachers. So this is going to be great. But um, the reason we're called more than a test is because um, at Amira, our assessments work every day, every word that a child reads, we give the data back to teachers. And we believe that teachers should be looking at tests as more than one, three times a year, but every day to know what kids are doing. But every guest hears more than a test and thinks something different. So I'm curious, when you heard more than a test, what did you think? Um, I thought about the, for us particularly, we're actually reducing assessments in Dallas ISD right now and really putting a close, close emphasis on formatively assessing students as part of the everyday instruction. So that's actually where my brain meant, went to was, you know, teaching and learning, engaging in, in high quality instruction is more than a test. Um, it, it is my path to get to be my very best. So that was, I mean, that's my 
that's my connection. That's what you heard. That's awesome. And I love that you're reducing. I'm sure what I heard you say the first time we recorded was we are reducing assessments so teachers can spend more time instructing. And I think, I think every teacher that will resonate with, that's really great. All right. The second thing is I would love to hear a literary moment from you. So what that means is a moment that was really informed your life or something, a happy place you go to, or something that changed you is of you and a book. So a time that you were with a book, um, that is important to you. Yeah, definitely. That's an easy one for me. I, I, I don't know. I don't sleep a lot. I read a lot. Um, I clear probably 150 books a year. Um, so I read quite a bit and a lot of people are like, wait, what, how many? Um, but because I don't sleep, I'm constantly reading. So most recently, somebody that I've really been attached to, um, I listen to audio books and I've read many of her books is Brene Brown. Um, and a lot of the just really practical tips and tricks and, you know, recommendations that she makes in, in work-life balance and in understanding how to care for others. I'm particularly attached to Dare to Lead. Um, I, I think her work on vulnerability uh, as a leader is, is probably one of the most powerful lessons that I have learned in, in my entire career. Um, and it, you know, how fitting, I'm not sure that I would have been ready to hear these lessons at a different point in my career. Um, so I'm glad that I'm getting the opportunity to do that now. Got to see her speak a couple of times. So I, I fangirl on her a lot. Um, but definitely, and that probably the literary moment in the dare to lead section was around armoring up. Um, and, you know, feeling like you've got to put on the armor to go out and defend. And, and actually, the strategy is more about being vulnerable uh, and going out there and saying, you know, I may not have all the answers. Uh, you may have more answers than I do, and I want to hear what they are. Um, but it takes quite a leader to put down the ego, right, and still be confident, um, still be a great leader, um, but really arm yourself in vulnerability and, and, and really arm yourself with the people who have the information, the talent, the wherewithal um, to help be a part of that, that leadership program. It is so fitting that a Texas girl called out another Texas woman or Texas woman Texas, called out another Texas woman in Brene Brown. I am a huge Brene Brown fan girl. Um, I will tell you that a long time ago, but back before she was as big as she is now, I was such a huge fan. And we used to watch the video of the bear and the fox where they talk about yeah. empathy and sympathy. I don't know if you've seen yeah. it, but it's really good. Um, yeah. And so, and my husband and I talk about how we have to get in the hole together. Like you have to go get in the hole. And so my husband went and like tracked her down in Houston, Texas and made yeah. her hold a sign with him that said, I'll get in the hole with you, Laura. <laughs> um, so I'm a huge fan too. Thank you for bringing that here. Uh, a piece of technology that you love. A piece of technology that I love. That's interesting. Um, so I'm not going to go for device. I'm going to go for um, technology development. I read a recent book called uh, the, well, it's not a recent book, but I read it recently called The Algorithmic Leader. Um, it was written by a futurist that I didn't even know that that's a job, um, but apparently it is. Uh, and it, it talks a lot about how technology is changing the way that we live, work, be. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in how artificial intelligence now is going to come on the market and, and be better for us, um, help us be better. And I feel like it's something that we've got to embrace uh, and learn how to 
work with intelligently so that we can be ready to help students do so and then plan for what the future looks like. Um, so I'm, I, I don't know if I'll, I don't know how people are going to receive this, but I do use chat GPT. Um, and I do, um, I'm taking my son to college in the next few weeks. I asked chat GPT to, uh, bring me up a list of, uh, needs for a college student moving into a, you know, a townhome made that list for me. It transferred it to a spreadsheet. It did some, uh, uh, some budgeting on that spreadsheet for me. That would have taken me two, three hours, right? So that two, three hours I can now spend having conversations with my son about where are we going to go and get these things? Like it, it brought me back to the connection with the human by using the artificial intelligence to do so. And I, I think we can't be afraid of that. I think we've got to embrace that. And I think um, for me, I love it. I love it. I, I love that we are talking to you right before your son goes to college and you finish your PhD. Today yes. is such a special day. Thank you for that. All right, the best advice you've ever been given. Oh gosh. I've just been uh, so blessed to have had the opportunity with so many great to work with so many great leaders um, over time. Um, I think for me, the best advice um, that I have had is to stay true to yourself. You know, um, you, you who you are is who you are. So you lead with your true self at all times. And the more you get away from your true self, the harder it becomes to be a great leader. Um, and I think I heard that message early, early on uh, with um, a very close friend of mine, Dr. Cheryl Jennings, um, who's she's long since retired, but works still in the post-secondary realm. And that was something I learned from her, from a model, from her words, from her actions. But you, you're your best leader uh, when you are true to who you are. Um, and that's what I think all great leaders do. And that's what I try to do every day. That's awesome. I love that. Um, and one book you think everyone should read? Uh, the Knowledge Gap, for sure. Um, for sure, these days, if you have not read The Knowledge Gap, highly recommended, especially you know, if you're grounded in literacy and you're looking for reasons why. Um, we really need to elevate literacy as an equity issue. Uh, the Knowledge Gap will help you uh, gather uh, really pertinent information that's going to help you make a decision on that. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for that book recommendation. Thank you for being so honest with your story. Thank you for everything you do for kids. And finally, obviously, congratulations. Today you are graduating. You are, you are walking to get your PhD and I can't believe you're spending it with us today. What an honor. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Just want to correction. I'm getting my EDD today. So I wish it were a PhD. Sorry, your EDD. You're, EDD. you're, you're becoming a doctorate. That's all yes, that you're, you're getting your EDD. You're, you're getting your, your EDD today. Thank you yeah. so much. All right. Thank awesome. You. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.